0: Thank you, band, for that lively song. Appropriate. The day before Monday. Right? My name is Austin. Welcome. Welcome to Waypoint. So glad you're here today. Maybe you don't necessarily want to uh, bang the drum all day. Maybe you're not a drummer. I don't know. Um, Or, um, yeah, I don't know what it is, but come tomorrow morning, I wonder how many of us have the same thought. I don't want to work. Anyone ever had that thought before? Some giggles going on. Because maybe some of you are like, just about every day, wake up. For some of us, um, and for some of us, it's, it might not even be that we just, it's, it's not just that we don't want to work. Um, it's that our relationship is work, or our relationship with work is such that tonight, by tonight, we're already stressed and anxious because tomorrow is Monday. Monday is coming, right? Researchers have called this the Sunday Scaries, um, or if you experience this on Mondays, the Monday Blues. Uh, they recently tried to—I um, don't know who—but they tried to put together this idea of like this. Monday, or Blue Monday, which is like the third Monday in January, which apparently is like the most depressed day of the year, I guess. I don't know. I don't think it's legit. I think it's been debunked. But it's, it's still true that there is something called this anticipatory anxiety. And it's largely being talked about in relation to work and our relationship with work. Now, I'm not trying to stress you out this morning, talking about work, talking about tomorrow being Monday. Um, And in fact, maybe you saw the graphic and you're like, oh yes, it's February. There's love in the air, right? There's the candy hearts on there. Valentine's Day is coming up. It's 10 days away. Should probably make your reservations soon because it's 10 days away. My dudes, whatever you're doing, Valentine's Day is 10 days away. Okay, just in case you didn't get it. Um, So you thought, you thought, okay, I thought it would be about relationships coming into Sunday morning uh, church. I thought we'd be talking about relationships. And I'm here to tell you, we are. We are talking about relationships, our relationships with work. Got it? Good. Okay, and here I'm using the word work very broadly. Essentially, whatever you do with most of your time during the week. For many of us, this likely refers to our typical work week, or maybe some of you, I think we probably have some students in the room, so this would be your time spent at class or on class work, okay? Maybe, maybe some of the things um, that you do for schoolwork, okay? Some of you might be retired here in the room, so this might refer to the things you've decided to fill your schedule with or volunteer for, um, which I'm sure can fill your schedule up pretty quickly. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, and so uh, this feels like all your hours. You never get a day off. Respect, all right? Respect. So work, very broadly, whatever you do with your most productive hours. So just so we get that clear. Um, And that idea, whatever you do with your most productive hours, work, I believe God cares about very much. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your relationship with Jesus should absolutely have an impact on your relationship with work. I mean, if following Jesus impacts every aspect of our lives, then surely Jesus should impact how we work. Following Jesus should impact how we work and how we think about work how we think about the idea that Monday is coming, because work constitutes a very large portion of our lives. So if Jesus affects every aspect of our lives, well, work is, I've, I've read roughly a third of that. For whatever reason, um, I, I, don't think, I don't think work, there's often a correlation uh, between following Jesus and work. Maybe for some of you, there is. Uh, some of us, I hope, would be honest and admit, yeah, I have no idea how following Jesus affects my work. Like, what, what, what really, though, does that have to do with, with my work, with, with my job? Some of us might be even more honest and admit they've never even considered how their relationship with Jesus should affect their work. And there might be some of us who would say, yeah, I mean, when I go to work, I try to be a good person, and I try to talk to my coworkers about Jesus, Right? I, try, I try to do some of those things. And then there are others who would say, well, um, I try to work from a different motivation or something. And I try to honor God by working hard and doing good work. And there may even be a few of us who would say, yeah, I don't really see a connection between Jesus and my work. So I should probably just quit my job and like, go be a pastor or like a missionary or something like that. Something where there's just more of a connection between God and my work. While some answers might be better than others, I think uh, think what that shows is that we need a deeper understanding of work, and not just of work, but how the the story of work, the story of how God worked and created us to work. Because if this is about our relationship with work, well, guess what? Every relationship has a story behind it. Has a story that gives that relationship meaning, value, and purpose. Sometimes people will ask, Morgan and I, so what's your story? What's your guys' story? In other words, where did you guys begin? What have you been through? Where do you want to go? And that's what we're going to be attempting to do with this series, um, with our relationships with work. And so it's my hope that we can find a way to replace some of the mentalities around work, um, the ones that our songs portray, the ones that we listen to on the radio, like working for the weekend or bang the drum, right? These songs that talk about work or, or working for a paycheck, right? All these songs that just kind of talk about it and replace these ideas about work that just leave us bored, busy, and tired, where work just has become means to an end, and it isn't enjoyable or significant, but just something we do, A, to survive, and B, to consume, to consume and pursue pleasure. which just leaves us feeling anxious, empty, and always wanting more. So I think we need to redeem this volatile love-hate relationship with work and learn to see work as a labor of love labor of love, like I believe God intended it to be. So whether you've got a story with work, good or bad, what I believe we need is God's story about work, a story that gives us meaning, value, and purpose for work, for a third of our lives, for all of our lives, I believe. But I really believe this impacts especially our work. And like every great story, we need to start with the beginning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, I invite you to open your Bibles to the beginning, right? Um, Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what kinds of stories begins with lines like, in the beginning? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Right? Awesome stories, great stories, epic tales, narratives. So let's keep that in mind as we read this. We're reading the beginning of a great story. And as much as we try to squeeze this book, squeeze out of this book um, information, things to inform us about cre- the creation of the world and how it was done so we can have all the answers that we think we need, I would encourage us to remember one of the main things about this, what this book is trying to do is offer us a great story about God at work and the meaning of work and vocation for us as humans, for humanity. So, chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, basically, God made everything up there, right? In the heavens. And then God did what? He made everything on the earth, down here. So God made everything up there. God made everything down here. And you might think, well, surely, Austin, there's definitely more to it. Like, you know, all that stuff. I think if there was, God would have said it. God would have told us in the scriptures. Maybe that's not the point God is trying to make. It just says God made it all in the beginning. What's up there? What's down here? And as we read, I think what the story is really interested in telling us is how God made it good. We're going we're to hone in on that idea. How is God taking and turning what's here into something better, into something good? Let's keep reading. Now the earth, verse 2, was formless and empty. Some of your translations might have void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Formless, empty, and dark. Does that sound good? No. That does not sound good. Right? And actually, this is, I'm going to share with you guys something um, that I learned that I thought was really neat. Um, And so it's this is actually a really neat phrase in Hebrew, um, and it rhymes. It's it's the phrase for uh, formless and empty. Tovu vavohu. Tovu vavohu. Can you say it with me now? Tovu vavohu. All right, there you go. You guys just learned formless and empty in Hebrew. Well done. Well done. Tovu vavohu, formless and empty is one way to translate it. A Jewish scholar by the name of Everett Fox, um, he tried to keep the poetic nature of it by using the phrase wild and waste. Wild and waste. Tovu vavohu is used elsewhere in the scriptures um, to describe or to talk about desert and wastelands. So I kind of I really like this idea that it's, it's tovu vavohu, wild and waste. I believe now he uses the term confusion and chaos. Now, the earth was wild and waste. It was confusion and chaos. You can kind of get the overall poetic nature of this story. Tohu vohu. And so God made everything up there and everything down here, and it's in this state of wild and waste or confusion and chaos. Tohu vohu. Again, is this good? No, this, this isn't good. Or more specifically, who isn't this good for? Who isn't it good for? Could we survive in, in tohu vavohu, in wild and waste? Maybe. Possibly. Would we thrive? No, this isn't, this isn't good for us. Okay, we are amazing creatures, but the answer is no, this isn't good for humans. Um, and here's, the, here's what we've been getting at. Everything God does in Genesis 1 is seen through the view of what is good for humans. And I know this to be especially true uh, for, oh, I I got ahead here, Um, it's it's through the lens of what is good for humans, especially humans, and so we're going to find that theme throughout Genesis 1 and 2. When God calls something good, it's especially good for humans. Wild and waste, not good for humans. Confusion and chaos, not good for humans, okay? This is especially true for tiny humans, little tiny humans. They do not thrive in wild and waste, in confusion and chaos. And this, I think, is actually a great analogy for, for what God is doing here, okay? Because when Morgan and I first had Ophelia, our first child, she's, she's just turned three in January, and we prepped the home. We prepared the home. We ordered the home for her arrival, Right, we set up the crib, we set up the nursery, we did all the things. We had like diapers and wipes in every room, like multiple diapers and wipes in every room. Okay, we got like the little outlet covers. Okay, the only thing we didn't do was like round out corners on the house cuz I was like, "God, oh, that's a lot of corners." It's a lot of corners to round out. Okay? But essentially, we prepared the house for her. We ordered the house for her arrival, for her to not just survive, but to thrive. For the potential of thriving. And it helped out a lot. And then we tried to do the same for Leora, uh, who was, who's now eight months old, um, but we actually, but now we have a literal walking and talking tohu vavohu in our house. Okay, so, like, it's, it's kind of been difficult. But this is what God is doing here. And we're going to skip over a lot, but that's essentially what God is doing in Genesis 1. He's taking confusion and chaos. He's taking, like, wild and waste, and he's ordering it. He's preparing it. He's bringing order by separating and naming for the potential for humans to thrive and generate life. For goodness. For the good of humans which is what God calls it all in Genesis 1, verse 31, right at the end. When God looks at his ordered, beautiful world, he says this, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and he said it was very good. We're going to learn another Hebrew word. The word for good is the word tov. It's the word tov. So God takes tohu vavohu, and he turns it into Tov. Do you see the wordplay that's happening here? Do you see what's happening, what the author is trying to do with us here in this narrative, in this great story? This is why I love the book of Genesis, specifically Gen- book of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because it's so brilliantly written, wonderfully written. And so God takes tohu vavohu and just orders it into tov. God takes wild and waste And he makes it good. How? By shaping it and ordering it. Why? For the benefit of others, humans specifically. Everything good in Genesis 1 is good because it is good for humans. The definition of good in Genesis 1 and 2, which we'll get get to Genesis 2 here in a second, but is defined as order and beauty for the benefit of others. That's what we can draw from the word good, the definition of good from this story. Order and beauty for the benefit of others. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested. He Sabbathed, right, from all of his work. We talked about Sabbath last summer. If you were here for that, or if you weren't here for that, go back and watch it. That's, that's another uh, great thing to be learning about and experiencing in your life, resting. Resting is so important. I believe we have to have good rest in order to work the rest of the time. Okay, so we talked about Sabbath. Go back and watch it. But this is the first time we see the, u- the word work used. First time we see the word work used in the Bible is right here. Who's the first worker here in Genesis 1? God. It's God. And what is God's work? Well, it's not exactly how he generated the material world. It just says, yeah, in the beginning, he made what's up here, and he made what's down here. God's work in the world, God's work in the world, and the model of work that we see from Genesis 1 and 2, is talking. it's talking about ordering confusion and chaos. It's talking about ordering all of that, and then generating a world that's good for humans, that's beautiful, that brings benefit to others. This is what is described as work. Not the intricate ways God did it, but the ways that it was made good. I think that's so fascinating. The biblical vision of work is not survival. Survival would just be roaming around in wild and waste, naked and afraid right, surviving off of like nuts or whatever, whatever you could, I, I don't know, I've never seen Naked and Afraid, so but some people are really into that, and I was like, I, I, don't, I don't get it, but anyway, that would, that would be it, just surviving, that wasn't the world God wanted to create, he's generating out of his creativity, his mind, something of beauty that will bring benefit to humans, benefit to others, work is an others-centered activity, do you guys see that here? When God works, it is for others. That is the vision of work here. It's not just survival, it's sharing. Yes, we also survive when we work. That's a byproduct of working. But it's not the point of it. Okay? When God, work is something God does so he can share the fruits of his work with others. Not just survival. It's an other-centered vision. But he wants to share it, and he wants to share it with with specifically a certain creature, uh, one in particular called Adam, called humans. So, he's been preparing and ordering uh, the world for Adam, which literally means earthling, or from from the earth, from from the, the dirt. Okay, so back to verse 26. Here we find God's first co-workers. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves to the ground. So there's all this potential. There's all this potential out there for good, right? All of it there. It's just there. Like God set up the world for it to just like explode with goodness. He just, need, he just he needs someone to work it. He needs somebody. Who's that somebody? Who's it going to be? All right. Adam. Okay. Because here's a, even, even a healthy tomato plant. Let's run with this for a second. Even a healthy tomato plant in God's garden, a healthy tomato plant, right? It's fresh, brand new tomato. Never been a tomato before. And now there's a tomato. Do you you think that's just going to like fall off the the plant into your plate, perfectly ready to eat? That's not how tomato plants work. It's not how gardening works. Does anyone garden here? Does anyone have a garden? Okay, some of you do. Like that's not how gardening works. Even if there like, weren't weeds, or there weren't predators, or there weren't things in your garden, resistance in your garden, and it still just wouldn't happen like that. You'd have to go pick the tomato. You'd have to make sure the tomato's getting water. There'd have to be all these things that would happen in work. There'd have to be work for that tomato to grow. And to land on your plate and to eat it. Right? That's what I'm getting here. Okay, a wonderful snake, steak, snake, not snake, a wonderful steak isn't just gonna fall into your lap, perfectly cooked, juicy, ready to go, right? No, you've gotta you've gotta hunt it and carve it and do the things that you need to do in order to have that nice juicy steak. That's what God's referring to when he says, rule and subdue the earth. Asserting your will over it so that over something so that it yields potential or increases its potential ruling and subduing. The tomato plant, sure, it's going to make some tomatoes if you just let them go wild, right? But it's going to make more tomatoes, and it's going to benefit more people. You're going to have more tomatoes for your family, for your neighbors. I am a neighbor who receives cucumbers from my neighbor, and it's great. I love it, Okay, So it's going to benefit more people if you can subdue your garden, if you can work to make it grow. That's the idea here. You subdue. You bring a certain amount of work and you subdue it and bring out its fullest potential. It's a positive thing. It's a vision of work that we have. And it's actually what God's been doing this whole time in Genesis 1, isn't it? Taking tohu vavohu, taking wild and waste, and asserting his will over it for good, turning it into tov. And so now he invites humans to do the exact same thing. Made my image. Now go do what I do right? And what kind, of, what kind of work is being recognized and lifted up here? Gardening. There's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important to say manual labor, especially. My point is, if you see a human at work, any kind of work, regardless of what sort of significance that we have placed on it as, on it, as a culture, if you see a human at work, you see the image of God. There is something valuable and distinct in that alone, regardless of what kind of work it is. In this, we see God as a gardener, someone who would come and take care of, of your plants, your tomatoes. This is the beautiful vision of work in Genesis. It's something God does, and it's something he gives over to his image bearers in the world. This is a story of work in the Bible. It's a divine gift. It's something that we as humans do to imitate the creativity and the goodness of the creator. We work to bring order and beauty and benefit to others so that others can benefit too. And Genesis 2 comes right, along aside, right alongside that idea with work. And it fleshes it out in a really unique way. Genesis 2 and 1 are two distinct ways of getting at the same story. They use, yes, they use different language, different imagery, different timelines, and so on, but they're all getting at the core the same images. So we're going to pick up, and we're kind of just going to skip around here because you don't have all morning, and I clearly don't have all morning. So the Lord God took, this is Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, to work it and take care of it. So here the image is not ruling or a subduing. It's related to the image of working, which you already kind of have an idea here of. But it's also care, too. There's also that care to work it and care for it, take care of it. There's an intention and an attention to carefulness and stewarding of a garden as we go about the work that we're bringing. Okay, and then continuing in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So up until this point in the story, who has been the provider of good, of Tove? God. I don't know who that is, but you should be here every Sunday. All right? God. God has been the ultimate provider of good. He has been the one that has named things good, provided all things good, and said, hey, go do more good. Right? To humans, to his image bearers. Okay? What is God offering? Okay? What God, what God is offering here to, to these humans with this tree is the freedom and dignity of moral maturity free will. And so one tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. And this is really just about discerning between what is good and what is not good. Who has been the sole provider of good, once again? God, thank you. Okay, so God, God has been identifying and creating good. So what this tree really represents here is will the humans humble themselves before their creator and submit to God's definition of what is good and not good? Or are they going to seize like autonomy and, 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 and take an opportunity to know that is to define knowledge, to define good and evil for themselves? Will we choose to do that? Or will we choose to trust in someone greater than us who has a deeper, unfathomable knowledge of good and evil? Or do we think we should define good and evil for ourselves? And it's not that they didn't know what was good. A lot of people say, well, what's the harm in that? What's the harm in us knowing what's good? We knew what was good. God told us what was good. He said, hey, all of these trees, they're so good and they're beautiful for you to have and to eat. Eat these things, they're good. All of this is good. Everything around you is good. We knew what was good. We wanted, humans wanted to define that for themselves. To be able to define it and identify it. That's the idea that's getting here with, these, with this tree. And there is no greater place. That question becomes, that question has importance. There's no better place or no more important place for that question of good and evil than human work. Because human work possesses all kinds of really difficult and complex scenarios and decisions for us. Work is the place where human beings exercise their moral judgment all of the time. It's true. Some of the worst moments in human history is when humans decided to subdue not just the creation to exploit it, but also to subdue other humans and exploit other humans, because they thought that was good. And so what do humans do here? Well, you know how the story goes right? Probably because you've heard it before, but also because you and I tend to live out the story every single day in our lives, don't we? We live in a world riddled with the effects of humans taking and exploiting the world and other humans. In Genesis 3, the humans are deceived Adam and Eve are deceived by a serpent and they choose to rebel and to find good and evil for themselves. And what happens is sin enters the story and begins to undo all of the tov that God made. Begins to unravel all of that in tovu vavohu is back in the world all over again. Right away, you see the implication of their actions, this wonderful relationship and institution that God granted the humans in marriage for order and beauty and to benefit one another and to benefit others, the world around them, all of a sudden now gets to define good and evil for themselves. Adam can and Eve can, and so... Now they have different views of good and evil, and so they hide from one another. And as you see, then you see Adam blame his wife because then he realizes, well, she has a different she has a different view of good and evil, God. She did the apple, and then I just went up with it, right? He now realizes that her definition of good and evil is different than, than his, and he blames her for it. This marriage gets fragmented. A family gets fragmented. Humanity's relationship to God becomes fragmented and distorted. Humanity's relationship to work becomes fragmented. Fragmented. So God says, chapter 3, verse 17, to Adam, Because you listened to your wife, you ate the fruit of the tree that I commanded you, saying, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it for all your days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return from the ground, because from, from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. So will humans be able to survive in this this new world? Well, yes, they will. They will be able to survive. Three times it said you're going to eat. Three times God says you will eat, you will eat, you will eat. But the environment has changed, Adam. You see, God made the world to need work. It's not like humans are just supposed to lay around being fanned, fed grapes. Right? Right? That's not the image we get in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Humans were supposed to work and work hard, right? Because God worked and worked hard. Except now there's going to be resistance, thorns and thistles we read. And it's funny to joke like, oh yeah, hey, hey this is where we get weeds from. Right? We kind of joke about that, but really it's a poem about the resistance we experience in our work. What are weeds if you're a gardener? The enemy. Your worst nightmare. Right? It's your nemesis. Because you're out for days cultivating that beautiful little tomato plant. And then weeds just come and choke it out. And then the next day, they're there again. And the next day, they're there again. And you don't want to kill your tomato plant. So guess what? Every day, you're trying to pull weeds. Right? That's the idea here. There's resistance. And this resistance comes from all sorts of places. There's stuff that I have absolutely no control over in my life that happens to me. Weeds. And then there's other things, right? Like it says, through your own painful toil, by the sweat of your brow, there's other resistances that are internal to me that I have to deal with, whether it comes from my own lack of ability or my own stupidity, the dumb choices that I make, which is quite frequently, right? And so I've got to deal with those in my work. And then all of a sudden, sin has fragmented our judgment and our morals. Remember, work is about our moral decisions, work requires moral decisions all the time. And so if that gets distorted and screwed up, all of a sudden the relationships that we carry out in our work become distorted and screwed up. And then there's just distortion and sin out everywhere from everyone else's sin, There's the sin of my coworkers that's going to spill into my own life and then into my own work, and that's frustrating and that's irritating, and then mine does that too, and that's frustrating and that's irritating, and then there's stuff that happens in the world like market conditions, economic downturns, things that just happen now because of our rebellion to define good and evil for ourselves, thorns and thistles. Genesis 3. That's the nature of the world we live in. Genesis offers this beautiful, dignified vision of work. By imitating the Creator, we bring order and beauty and benefit to others to share. But now we live in this post fallen world where hearts are compromised by selfishness and sin and we have dreams and goals that we will never accomplish because we live with weeds and thorns. So this is what Genesis 1-3 asks us to recognize. This is the world we live in and work in. We have the vision and design of work, and we have the ruin of work. But is there hope? Does this story offer us hope? Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, deceived them, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, enmity that word always gets me, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and she or and he will crush your head. He, very important there, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is going on here? From this event forward, there will be two lineages of humans. Ones that align themselves with the lure of the serpent, giving in to evil and giving in to the temptation. Or the ones that are going to align themselves with a hope of God's promise for the world, for us. Because this hostility that God puts between the serpent and her offspring, what does it say? It says, he will crush your head. The serpent head is going to be crushed by who? He, the woman's offspring. So there's coming a line from this woman And he is going to crush the head of the source of evil in our world. He's going to step on him. He's going to crush his head. And what's the serpent going to do in the moment of victory? Bite his heel. In other words, this one, he is going to be wounded as the means of his crushing of the evil one to become victorious. Here's the idea. It's that somehow this victor is going to come and take the venom of the serpent into himself and absorb it fully into himself, What is the venom of the serpent? Sin, evil, that is released into the world, that's lured all humanity into it. And so this victor, spoiler alert, it's Jesus, okay? This he comes and he takes it onto himself by taking on the sin of the world and he crushes and destroys the source of evil for itself. What's the implication of that victory for our lives, but more importantly, for our work and the promise of work? It's the redemption of God's good world through our work. Through our work. That's what this means for us. How do our stories fit into this story of work? This vision that God has of work, the fall, the ruin of work, and yet because of Jesus, the redemption of work. How does our story fit into that? Moving forward, what does it look like? When Jesus, the moment on the cross, when Jesus absorbs human sin into himself, what enables us in the present moment, it, that enables us in the present moment to, for, for us to move the kingdom forward, God's kingdom, heaven on earth. For God to make tov out of the tovu vavohu that is in our world, he needs us his coworker sorry he doesn't need us he chooses us he chooses us and that is a humbling thing for me to say god chooses us to bring about tove in the world What does that look like for you? Where is the tovu vavohu in your work? Where is the tovu vavohu, the wild and waste, the chaos and confusion in your life that is affecting your work and those at your work? Those are some Genesis one and two questions that you can ask about your work. And then there's a Genesis three question. How can Jesus, you following Jesus, experiencing that redemption, his grace and mercy, then bring redemption to your work? How can your story become a part of this? You can be a part of the redemptive work in the world. We're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to talk more about the future of our work and its significance here and now next week. Band, you guys can come on up. But I think as we learn more about work, I invite you, I invite you to choose to walk out that story of Genesis one through three. There is good in your life. There is good in the world. God made it so. There is good in you. God made you so. Very good, he says, after he made humans. But we also live in a world that's fallen. What are the ways we can bring redemption through our work? If work is for the good and for the benefit of others, what are the ways that we can do that in our work, in our workplaces, in the lives of those around us? Whatever your work looks like. Can I pray? God, this morning, we're grateful for this opportunity, for this place, for the people here. God, we're grateful for your work for the story that we have of work, God, that you are a worker and that you call us to work. I pray, Lord, that as we consider our weeks and a majority of the time that we spend during our weeks working, that we might think about the ways, God, in which we can glorify you with our work. It's more than just working hard or harder. In what ways can we bring Tov into Tovu Vavohu? In other words, what ways, God, can we bring order, beauty, good, into the confusion and chaos of our world? God, you entrusted us with this when you made us in your image. And so, God, we we trust you. Maybe this morning we just need some, some inspiration from you, Jesus. God, what does it look like for me to go into my work? What does bringing order even mean in my work, Jesus? How do I bring beauty to my work and, God, make it good? How can I make it good? Some of us might be here this morning, we're really frustrated with our work. We've had to experience a lot of thorns and thistles, and it seems like every opportunity we get is met with resistance. So, God, we pray and we cling to your promise. God, may we choose to be a hopeful people who trust in your promise, in the good that you have already given us, in the goodness. And the grace and mercy and the sacrifice of your son Jesus. God, lead us out of this place. May we walk with you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.